Welcome to the Fusion Forest Podcast here on AshevilleFM.org. I'm your host, Leaf, and this show will feature discussions of environmental science, nature, eco-philosophy, and community environmental issues. And it could involve more, really whatever the guests that come on to the show want to talk about. Now these conversations are taken from segments that originally aired on the Fusion Forest radio show on 103.3 Asheville FM, but instead of being aired in segments with musical interludes, you'll get to hear the entire conversation as they happened in their entirety. And with some of the longer conversations, there will be bonus segments that did not air on the broadcast episodes on 103.3. This episode features a conversation that originally happened on September 17th and was aired on the September 28th episode of The Fusion Forest. And in this episode, I talked to Craig Trester, who is a environmental educator, citizen scientist, and applied mycologist based in New York City. He teaches students of all ages on topics like mushroom cultivation, DNA barcoding, soil microscopy, and uh, all sorts of other science topics generally related to the research of fungi and other things that live in the soil. And he's been a part of some of the original pioneering open-source laboratories in the U.S., which formed in New York City in the last decade or two. So Craig joins me to talk about his experience teaching different important topics and concepts related to soil health, mycology, and microbiology, and talks about some of the techniques for studying soil life, as well as future directions for the field to go. The discussion covers a range of topics and sometimes gets littered with lots of technical scientific jargon, so be aware. And uh, most of the things we're talking about, each topic could be a multiple hour discussion on its own. So I'm glad Craig was able to join me and try to explain uh, what he's doing and some of his interesting thoughts in a rather concise form. So enjoy this discussion and this dive into the soil microcosmos here on the Fusion Forest podcast on AshevilleFM.org. Hi, Craig. Thanks for joining me here in the Fusion Forest. What's going on, Leaf? Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah, not too much. I am just curious to hear about some of your work and what you've been up to. Um, This is a nature science talk program. And if I'm not mistaken, you are a environmental educator of sorts, right? Definitely. It's been interesting how I got into it and we'll kind of cover that story. So I'm an environmental educator and a citizen scientist, kind of at the intersection of mycology, soil, microbiology, but more towards the application of such. So I started uh, MYC.NYC back in 2018 as an applied mycological educational resource, kind of teaching the benefits that fungi provide to our health, our environment, and our, our society as a larger whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so before we go any further, in case uh, some of our listeners are already lost, could you... Uh 
define and delineate and maybe explain the relations between mycology, microbiology, and soil health? Yeah, that's a great way to put it in perspective. Mycology is the study of uh, fungi. Fungi are interesting because most people's experience with fungi, you know, when we say fungi mushrooms or molds or, you know, mycelium or, you know, these organisms, most people have don't really have much of interaction with it. It's either kind of in a culinary sense um, or, you know, they have an unpleasant experience that's growing on something they're trying to, like, preserve in their refrigerator. But exhibiting the fact that these organisms are the the cyclers of nutrients in nature and kind of connecting it with the microbiology it's interesting because you know the filamentous fungi that we see these macro fungi as mushrooms they kind of go through these stages where their individual filaments of the mycelium the hyphae they're they're microscopic they're you know four to twenty microns in diameter so they have these uh, microscopic stages of the life cycle where they aggregate they become macroscopic and then obviously producing a fruiting body, a mushroom, you know, and then the vast majority of fungi though are microscopic molds or yeasts or the, some of them filamentous or budding, but don't produce uh, these, these large macro uh, reproductive fruiting body structures and kind of tying it into soil. Fungi are very much the architects of the soil. They are one, most people are, are common with them. If you go out foraging for mushrooms in the woods, they are decomposing organic matter. They're, uh, uh, they're saprotropic. Um, so usually breaking down the complex uh, structures of cellulose, lignin hemicellulose, the, the structural polymers that make up plant matter. They're also mutualists. They're also the, the symbionts. Uh, rather than just decomposing our matter, they're forming these very intricate symbiotic relationships with plants on the exterior parts of plants, but also the interior parts. And actually, actually cycling and moving these nutrients back and forth, and amazingly, um, through their vast aggregates of hyphal networks in the soil, working with plants to increase the surface area of roots and access to nutrients uh, tens of thousands folds, and even further, these uh, hyphal filaments and the massive amount of uh, surface area they occupy. I think an estimate is that in a healthy agricultural soil an acre in an acre of healthy agricultural soil there's about two tons of mycelium and that in um a number of um older growth forests a lot of these uh mycorrhizal fungi they'll account for roughly 70 percent of the actual biomass of the soil they're the kind of architects in the soil that their biomass is a is a surface a substrate by which all these different microecologies exist on uh, bacteria other fungi nematodes microarthropods and it's amazing because we tend to think about ecology as kind of these plants and animals these these macroscopic organisms but what's even more interesting is that the microbial ecology of the soil kind of the soil food web which we'll kind of get into later and i've alluded a bit to about is just as important if not more because it's the foundational level of nutrient cycling, building all the structure as where all these keystone species set the stage for the types of life forms we're more common with every single day. So I guess in a nutshell, that's kind of the interrelation between mycology, uh, soil, and kind of microbiology. So yeah, wow, must be a pretty big nut to fit all that inside of its <laughs> shell. Um, but uh, yeah, that, it, clearly, this is a very uh, deep and uh, interesting subject. And what, uh, what kind of age groups of people or audiences do you teach this kind of information to? 
So yeah, that's it's it's really interesting. Uh, it's a great question because I started out teaching even before I got into it of kind of being uh, a teacher, both of a tutor and subjects, uh, also uh, teaching English and also tutoring Chinese to both Chinese immigrants, teaching them English as part of my volunteering and also tutoring Chinese. So working with uh, students from an age range from middle schoolers to high school, college to adults. So I kind of had that base background in working with things that are a bit complex. English is actually a pretty complex language. We tend to forget that as native speakers. But yeah, so I had that background and but speaking on more recently what I do now with NYC, NYC, uh, all age, age groups and ages from uh, middle school to high school to college to adults because it's really interesting because we really, fungi are kind of this, it's really this really gap in a knowledge base. And we think about the fact that fungi were formally separated from plants back in the late 60s, 1969, and that they're, it's less than 100 years old and they play such a huge role in our ecology. So really students of all ages, because one for the younger generation, it's important they have that supplemented in their education. This is kind of the opportunities I've had working with a number of uh, educational not-for-profits, ecological conservation organizations to kind of provide this education they recognize is, is fundamental, but really hasn't gotten to the point of getting moved through kind of a formal curriculum and education and also how do you go about the process of uh, pedagogy to teach these things mm. then with college students because there's a huge thing now with the interest of kind of fungi are really in vogue between gourmet or medicinal fungi that have immunomodulatory properties both gourmet and medicinal do have these properties uh, biomaterials so the fact is these fungal mycelium can be made into replacements for animal or synthetic based uh, polymers that are used to make clothing and even further aspect kind of what I got into was the remediation. The fact that fungi are these incredible cyclers of nutrients, decomposers, recomposers, and mutualists in that, you know, as kind of we're approaching the Anthropocene, well, we're in the Anthropocene, a lot of the anthropogenic materials that we have, they're made up of a lot of the similar stuff that's been here for a long times for, and these fungi have been here through a, quite a long period of time on, uh, on not only earth's, different ecological histories but geological histories as well so yeah before before we go forward could you just briefly define what the anthropocene is and related to other epics yeah definitely so usually talking about in geology or earth science we kind of talk about at what stages the earth went through based upon its geological morphology is we, we have these tectonic plates that are make up our world whether they're exposed above water or below water they're still very active and floating on this mantle and moving around and so as a result this is affected on, on different rock formations and we can look at the geological strata and look through time to see what kind of life forms have lived through these aspects so normally anyone who's familiar with concept of archaeology or paleontology we understand that you, you dig down you find remnants of either past ecologies in time or past civilizations within time as well, more recent time, which we're talking about humans. So the Anthropocene is the fact is uh, we're starting to produce things that don't so readily recompose and produce them on a quantity that they're becoming apparent parts of the fossil record. So mm -hmm. the anthropogenic capacity. So this is more so with our production of petroleum hydrocarbons, uh, with plastics, uh, artificial materials that are durable, and kind of changing the way that we dynamically interact with them that maybe our ancestors who were living a lifestyle which was much more based upon natural materials and fibers and and constructions versus artificial or 
as we've learned to apply more science, don't quite readily decompose. They're pretty much more static. It's the whole thing that like that plastic styrofoam coffee cup will probably hang around longer in the soil than the entirety of recorded human history in the past couple hundred years, you know, uh, mm. well, well beyond that as well. And so anthro is uh, referring to humans. And so the Anthropocene is like the era in the geological record where humans are the, would say, driving influence on what makes it different than past uh, parts of the Earth's history. Yep. Awesome. And so you work through an organization called... NYC, MYC, that's correct? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I kind of started, it was like mycology in New York City. And it was interesting. It started out as just an Instagram page because I was really interested in learning about uh, micromediation and applying it. And I was joined a community biology lab back in end of 2017, 2018. And I started doing this work and people were interested in opening up to the community there. And I was like, okay, I need to document it, right? So it started out as a way to just to kind of be like a visual kind of notebook or a journal. And then it kind of evolved with different opportunities to teaching. So yeah, it's more so quote unquote, like a DBA or doing business as just myself. And it's something definitely with a number of people that are kind of in the similar community that I've met, they will have themselves, but a kind of moniker or a title that they'll use, which kind of becomes a brand because it's part of like, oh, you had a social media handle, a name versus yourself and kind of a slant to it. So yeah, um, it's the mycological educational resource that I started to kind of teach benefits about fungi and it rolls off the tongue a little better and rather than just me as myself as an educator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, settling into the digital marketing landscape, sounds like. <laughs> yeah, so I actually am curious uh, to, uh, to learn a little bit more about, you mentioned working in a community biology lab up in New York City there, and there might be around, as far as I know, I'm not aware of any community biology labs here in Asheville. Um, I don't know if those are things that more exist in larger cities, but could you just talk a little bit about your experience at the community lab and, you know, kind of maybe the range of different things people were working on and is there collaboration between the people using the space? Definitely. So it's really quite interesting because um, if you go back about just over 10 years ago, uh, there were no really such things as community biology labs. And so the, the place where I got my start, uh, GenSpace, was actually the first community biology lab. It was it was initially started by a, uh, a really good mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Ellen Jorgensen. So she was doing a number of initiatives, a career in, in research science as well, molecular biology. I believe her thesis was on molecular virology. So it was kind of the aspect that there was this whole DIY bio kind of online group that started in. It started with her typing in, hey, anyone kind of want to start a community lab or get together to try this stuff? And she was kind of impressed that a lot of people were fascinated by what you could do with molecular biology, working with DNA, extracting it, amplifying it using PCR and being able to analyze it and learn a lot about the rich amount of genetic information is in every single cell of a living organism. Mm. Um, so that, uh, that kind of got started in 2000 and I think 2008, nine is when it kind of got first kicked off. So it's been 10 years now. And now um, there are community biology labs all over the world, big cities and smaller cities all over. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. It definitely is kind of a thing where kind of in bigger metropolitan areas, it tends to be one that props up because you'll have a group of people. There are informal ones that I know of, like people just get together, like kind of like through a meetup group or have a space where they meet. 
Uh, and this kind of happened largely due to my understanding of the 2008 financial crisis, a number of biotech companies kind of went belly up. And so all this equipment went on the market to be auctioned off. A number of people who are interested in kind of doing this individual work, you know, got together, acquired this equipment, and even people who had experience kind of outfitted these labs. So it was, it was really kind of amazing how, you know, I got into this point around uh, 2016, 2017, and was looking for a place to just do my lab work. You know, a, a big thing, kind of thing I got into, it was learning about micromediation, kind of applied mycology, joined the New York Mycological Society, was reading about some of the micromediation work, went to a workshop run by two ecological program managers up at uh, Van Cortlandt Park uh, in New York City. It's a it's a pretty large park up in New York City, uh, over a thousand acres. It's got some pretty natural ecologies up there as well, least disturbed. And these two ecological program managers were, were teaching a, a workshop on mushroom cultivation and micromediation. And I went and I heard about the applied mycology, learned about radical mycology, learned about these aspects and how there was kind of this community that was there and people trying to utilize it in a kind of direct action kind of way. And it was pretty mind blowing. So I started doing this stuff and, you know, bought a pressure cooker, bought like Petri dishes, was pouring agar in my apartment. And I had, uh, you know, was growing, home lab. Yeah. Home lab. Like, you know, and you know, it's up to a certain point you get your roommates will throw out your Petri dishes and like ask, why are you growing mold in the fridge? I'm like, well, I'm not, but it is, but you know, trying to explain, the difference between like a filamentous fungi that's like a macro fungi versus uh, something like like a like a penicillium or like it's yeah, good you've, growing. Yeah, you've said too much already. Their their eyes have glazed over <laughs> and um, they're not having any. Yeah, they just no anymore. So yeah, I, I at that point I was all right. You know, probably need to find a space to do it. So I was like looking. I was actually kind of like studio space to do it, but then I heard about the community biology lab and it was perfect because like you know for a set amount of money a month you could have space, you can do a project as long as it worked within it. Uh, and one of the prerequisites of it was to like, was to uh, take some courses um, on molecular biology they offered. So it was really amazing because at the same time, the club that I was a part of, the New York Mycological Society, they were getting into DNA barcoding fungi. They Could have this... you um, to just talk a little bit about what DNA barcoding is? Yeah. So DNA barcoding is the process by which you can identify organisms not by sequencing their whole genome but by sequencing a select region uh, like it's usually a, it's a it's a region that contains a portion of a couple of genes and then some areas that are spacers so you know genes are important like uh, they to have their sequence conserved is important because otherwise the gene won't be able to be translated into a protein and function so that could be a big problem Anyway, so this barcode region is an area that has a nice mix of variable and non-variable DNA that's identified by different organisms. So then you could, rather than sequencing the whole genome, you could use a technique called PCR, polymerase chain reaction, to amplify, make lots of copies of this region you've isolated from a cell. Then you could uh, send that in to be sequenced, and you would get the sequence of A, T, Gs, and Cs, the nucleotides, you could then, once that's been digitized, you have the sequence, you could then feed it into a bioinformatics algorithm. And then it's like kind of Googling like a DNA code. And then you can cross-reference that and get a pretty close match to that as well. So, yes. yeah, it's pretty neat. It's like Googling an organism's genetic code. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I've, I've had a couple people on the show who've mentioned DNA barcoding. Or a few months ago, I was talking to an animal biologist who did a lot of environmental dna uh type of research Ooh, um, DNA. You, yeah doing that and she was doing that with um like water samples 
she done it with some fresh water with trying to find turtle uh, DNA and then it also done it in marine water trying to find like seal DNA and abalone DNA. Is there an overlap between eDNA and barcoding or are they yeah, completely different yeah. things? So um, the simplest thing like just barcoding is you're, like you're looking for these barcoding regions. So you're looking for these areas of the genome that you know you can look and look for uh, variants or conservation between different types of organisms. So, for example, in the environment, there's a mix of DNA everywhere, right? DNA is everywhere. It's pretty persistent. However, what you can do is you can isolate from an environmental sample of water or soil and filter it out and then aliquot certain amounts of this extracted solution with the DNA and then add in certain primers, which will specifically bind to parts of uh, that region based upon certain organisms. So if you're scooping up a bit of a sample from water and you're looking at fish or you're looking at zooplankton or, um, or other kind of aquatic organisms, there's all these different primers that select for these different barcode regions based upon the organism. So the eDNA, you can work within this preparation in a couple different techniques that I won't get into, but it'll, it's a more advanced version of whereas barcoding fungi is pretty simple. You just take a little bit of the tissue, grind it up. Uh, and it's you know what you're working with, and you can design it. But if you're doing eDNA, you're working with a set of primers and a range based upon what you want to work with, and then based upon if you're using a older DNA sequencing technique called Sanger sequencing, or if you're using something like Next Generation, there are a number of different workflows and preparations to get that library of DNA ready to be feed into a DNA sequencer to then help you know what you're looking for. Okay, interesting. So on the note of these DNA barcoding and eDNA techniques you just said, let's bring it back to the teaching you do, both in the um, school setting and also in the informal setting that I imagine you have more curious and adult learners. Uh, when you teach these types of classes, are you teaching things like how to do DNA barcoding or other techniques for microbiology or studying the soil? Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting because I do a number of aspects kind of transitioning from the DNA. We'll talk about that. So I've taught a number of workshops, both in a lab space, community lab, where you have a controlled environment, where we would go out on a mushroom walk to like, let's say like a park or, you know, Greenwood Cemetery is nearby, Gen Space, where I was initially doing it, or even Prospect Park, which is close by Biotech Without Borders, which is another organization go out, you'd find the mushrooms, uh, you'd kind of do the field ID, bring them back, you'd extract the tissue, you'd isolate the DNA, amplify it, verify it using a process called gel electrophoresis, which allows you to look at the DNA through um, a flesh and dye, and that's suspended in a gel, and then send it in for sequencing. So yeah, I've actually taught the hands-on stuff to groups and through spaces, but also have taken it on the road. I've actually taught some DNA barcoding workshops across the country a uh, number of mycology summits and festivals and even some mushroom farms So through all this kind of portable lab equipment, so kind of like a lab in a bag. That's one aspect because um, in the perspective I'll, I'll talk about that is like people are like, why do I need to learn this? I'm like, well, it's, it's another way to learn about our natural world, but also, you know, the one thing people kind of forget that it's not just about a qualitative, it's also about quantitative, counting and measuring and having something to write down and how that could be a huge impact in generating data about our ecology that could actually save it if there was some aspect that might be damaged or need to provide some evidence mm -hmm. um, so so on the quantitative side does that mean you can do these genetic techniques to tell how much of something is there and not just that it's there in the first place well 
a little bit of both. It depends upon the design of the experiment and reproducing as well. So there are some interesting aspects about you can do uh, some more quantitative techniques, a little more technical to get into. But yeah, so based upon how you design your experiment and what techniques, but okay. you can do some and interesting applications. And another question on that, because you're talking about people going out on mushroom forays or going to farms and identifying uh, the mushrooms using the DNA barcoding techniques. Uh, what Do you really need to do that? Can't you just pick the mushrooms and look at them and identify them that way? So this is the amazing thing is that like fungi are pretty cryptic and elusive. And it's, it's really interesting because when the molecular techniques, molecular biology got integrated into mycology, a lot of people felt some kind of way because you could truly separate basically species that were formerly thought to be related based upon morphology but are quite different. Because the one thing about fungi is we're realizing that they're quite prolific in their ability to converge uh, on evolutionarily in shape and form and structure. Mm -hmm. And so by converge, you mean like multiple different species or lineages ending up having like the same trait or like unrelated fungi having mushrooms that look the same well similar shapes and forms um and even too within a species like what dispensates it branching off to become a new species right beyond becoming a variety so the molecular analysis really lets you look at how much change has occurred in the genes in its genome in critical areas that normally don't vary that much one example i like to talk about is pretty amazing is understanding the ectomycorrhizal fungi the mycorrhizal fungi that grow on the outside of the plant root, there's so many species of them um, that all converge. They were all saphotrophic fungi, but, you know, can basically converged on forming these mutual symbiotic relationships with plants, but still conserving part of their saphotrophic genes mm -hmm. to allow certain types of decomposition as well. So it's pretty amazing because there's a lot of information you can learn about. For example, if you're trying to find a new type of mushroom or finding a mushroom in an area that normally doesn't, especially with climate change and certain uh, and our shifts in global warming, how we're, our ecologies are shifting in based upon their normal climate type, um, that could be a way to really kind of prospect and, and actually have a documentation that isn't just hearsay. Hmm. All right, that's interesting. So you can use it as a technique to kind of track how species are changing over time, even within our own lifetimes. Let's transition out of the genetic world, and I want to ask you, are there techniques that you teach or are aware of that don't require using genetics and primers and all that that allow people to assess what's alive in their soil and what's not? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, microscopy, uh, that's probably the best way to do it. Um, something I've really mm -hmm. been diving into the past. The use uh, of microscopes yeah, is what yeah. that is, right? I'll, just, I'll, I'll be a little better just clarifying <laughs> if I use it. Uh, maybe a bit of an obtuse, up an apro term. Yeah, so microscopy, the use of using, using a microscope. Um, because um, the big thing of why uh, genetic work really got picked up and interest is because it takes a you can spend a lot of time like delving into the microcosmos, looking at slides and all these different fields of understanding what's in your soil or growing on something or heck even looking at a structures of these fine fascinating organisms that you really can't see with your with your own naked eyes. So getting into the soil and that's something I've been getting into. How do you assess the microbiology in your soil? And you really have to do with a microscope if you're not going to use molecular techniques because it's the understanding that you can look at your soil 
and understand, okay, like, what is the ecology like? Is it diverse? You know, is it diverse bacterially? Is it diverse fungally? What stage of succession is it happening? And succession refers to the process by which there's been some kind of ecological disturbance. And uh, over time, it's gradually kind of moving its way towards an advanced ecosystem, like an old growth forest where it's fungally dominant, but the fungi being the architects of the soil are creating all the structure and all this surface area for other plants to basically associate with and trade nutrients, but also for microbiology to live on and around. Hmm. We talked about fungi a bit in their architecture and bacteria. Um, I imagine people are pretty familiar with, but could you briefly describe the importance of bacteria or some of these other types of organisms that live in the soil and why they're important to plant health? Totally. Absolutely. So it's interesting, too, because when I first got into studying fungi, I was like, oh, it's all about fungi, right? And it's, it's, it's funny, like, as much as we want to think systems sometimes, it's very easy to fall back into that reduced thinking trap and realize it's part of a bigger picture. But yeah, in the soil, um, bacteria are also pivotal. They're everywhere. They're far more able to break down a lot of these simpler types of sugars and foods and, and proteins, uh, whereas fungi are far more able to break down the more complex ones. Um, you know, even a number of the waste products that fungi produce, these large molecular weight compounds, these uh, these omic, these humic, and fulvic acids, only fungi can break them down and can actually sit in the soil unutilized by bacteria if that's only a population. And then we understand in general it's a whole ecology, whereas these bacteria and fungi, they're able to decompose organic matter, but also, too, they can solubilize out of the sand, silt, and clay, the parent material, uh, the whole range of micronutrients, macronutrients, and trace uh, trace uh, elements from minerals that that you know plants need to survive. So this whole mutualism of uh, exchange between you know plants being able to basically farm microbes and attract them from producing exudates. And so are you saying that the plants cannot actually access these nutrients from the soil directly through their roots, but they need these microorganisms to do it for them well yeah that's that's kind of the big big part of how it works um you know it's it's interesting what it how did people grow food before they were industrial fertilizers that's 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 the thing i do think about like you know like and like and the reality is that you know it's understanding that like decomposition the cycling of nutrients was essential and that i think a lot about how the reason why the westward of expansion that happened in america actually and even let alone like the actual the movement of European peoples to the new world once they quote unquote discovered it or, you know, accidentally bumped into it thinking it was an entirely different continent was because the prospect of these fertile soils because they hadn't been disturbed through the conventional uh, method of tilling. So breaking up all of the aggregates that these fungi and bacteria were building oxidized the soils and broke it up and to the point where you had to apply manure, you had to apply this animal based fertilizer and why you know, the concept of composting, uh, kind of going back to a number of people that picked it up more so, I believe, in the 19th century, I kind of I observing how people in the Indian subcontinent were doing it. This was a way to basically facilitate the cycling of nutrients by arranging compositions of different organic materials to decompose in a, an accelerated fashion. Yeah, that's cool. And so you mentioned compost, which I think has become a relatively common practice in uh, the modern America. Not that everyone does it, but lots of people have compost piles and little compost barrels or compost worms. And and that's that's the method you're saying for creating a lot of this biological diversity that then you can add back into the soil. Mm -hmm. 
I've also heard that nowadays there's these, I don't know if they're initially new, but these uh, techniques that people have been starting to practice more that kind of take the essence of composting, but make it a little more efficient and not requiring hauling around giant mounds of manure and other things. Um, I, I think it's called natural farming. Is that something that you are or know about or would like to talk yeah, about? Um, it's, it's interesting and it's kind of, it's funny. Well, perspective, I got into fungi because I was interested in environmental remediation of the soil and learning about fungi. And then I, that led me into learning about the soil and then learning about natural farming practices, which are a way to like inoculate a compost, um, your compost with the beneficial microbes that are already doing it in these advanced succession ecosystems where there's less disturbance going on. So yeah, natural farming, which is pretty amazing, interesting. It's and in the United States, it's it's called Korean natural farming, which is funny because it, it just happened to be you know really kind of taught by Master Cho or Cho uh, Cho San Yu, which master just means teacher and like kind of a transliteration. Natural farming is how you can understand that in ecologies where succession has gone through, you have a diversity of microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, nematodes, microarthropods. Uh, yeasts, and even actual viruses, viruses that actually attack bacteria and fungi and are hugely responsible for the majority of biomass, and but all part of this, this basically this life being on life process, you know, on microbial scale, things happen much faster. So how do you culture those or capture that kind of snapshot of like a forest soil and take it to your, your compost pile or take it to your land where you want diversity, but maybe you don't want to wait a long time or have to haul everything or, you know, evaluate. So it's the natural farming practices are an amazing way that something I'm learning more and more about and how to understand and something eventually I'd like to apply the molecular techniques to, to really kind of quantitatively and qualitatively assess what's happening. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the fascinating part of it. Yeah. So in the compost or the inoculum you create through natural farming, you're creating a very diverse community of microorganisms, uh, but you can't really know what exactly is living in there unless you do something like some of that genetic analysis or environmental DNA, right? And, and just, I haven't really heard of people doing full genetic sequencing on their compost to know what's in there. So it sounds like it's maybe a field that's ripe for exploration definitely and well it's interesting too because um compost well like when people are first learning about it you'd maybe go to your municipal dpw or whatever where they would like take uh, trees that were down and chip them or like food scraps and they do it and sometimes people will pick it up and they feel like oh i got this compost and i put it on my plants and all my plants died and then someone who knew a little bit more about compost was like oh no this is just like putrefied organic matter or this is just like mulch so it's the composition, which is interesting. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Like we're learning how to apply it. But one of the best ways to make it kind of not foolproof, but really, really allow for a big fudge factor is having an inoculum of these microorganisms that you could propagate. That's the biggest thing is like all these things are amazing and you can assess through qualitative. Oh, wow, my plants grew or this and that, the soil. But, you know, like this is where research needs to be done. This is where a lot of the techniques that kind of get knocked about being a stickler or just scrutinizing we need robust methods to document and to measure and evaluate because if there's truly some amazing things that are being done using these natural farming techniques, that's something that is an exciting part of science to move into because you could truly understand what is happening in these unique processes and techniques 
by understanding like, you know, the ranges of microbes and even tuning when you're dealing with soil microbes, some of them haven't even been classified. We can only culture less than uh, 2% of microbes. We by culture, cult you mean culture, you mean that we can like grow them in a controlled setting? Yes. So growing them usually on, on agar. Which is... Which is... Uh, that's a, like a seaweed-based gelatin powder yeah it's uh it's a it's a it's a it's a powder that comes from red seaweed also you can get it from uh from asian grocery stores it's uh mm. oftentimes uses like a gelatin substitute i think actually when um i think was it robert coke um he was one of the like the quote-unquote founders of uh modern medicine bacteriology it was actually his lab assistant that well petrie kind of came from that um, and basically realized you can use agar, but it was actually Petrie's wife that discovered that agar was a, uh, this powder from a seaweed that made basically this, uh, this uh, heterogeneous gelatin structure was way better for culturing microbes. I, I think I've heard this story before that it was like he was in doing his microbiology lab work and his wife like figured this out from cooking and then told him about it. And then he got a bunch of accolades and never really said where he got the idea from. And it didn't come out till later that his wife actually invented it yeah there's a lot of those stories in history you know mary curie when basically it was, it was a it was a wife husband duo and initially um i think the the foundation that gives her the Nobel prize only initially wanted to recognize her husband rosalind franklin with the structure of dna doing uh x-ray crystallography on dna and kind of she passed away and so watson and crick got it's, it's pretty amazing but yeah, to that point, we understood a lot about microbiology and pathology from that, but realized that like we kind of shifted microbes as being these bad things, these pathogens, that when reality we're covered in microbes, they're actually essential for our health. And we're realizing the microbiome is, it's, it's a foundational part of our health. And the more a diverse microbiome, the healthier you are, it, it changes your mood, your behavior, what you'll eat. And we're just starting to begin to understand this as well. So yeah, that's that's a whole another topic of discussion. So getting getting <laughs> save that for later. Getting back to the soil, though, we can only culture on agar in a this defined media. Two percent of the organisms that are out there, because you know, think about how many different combinations of organic matter that are in the soil. It's mind blowing. So oftentimes, mm -hmm. when you do a number of these sequencing of uh, of the soil, but also the gut of the microbiome, you get these unknown hits because we haven't been able to like actually understand them. That's when you can kind of really go down the rabbit hole because you can make these things called uh, OTUs, organizational taxonomic units, when you can group these organisms by how similarly or dissimilarly related are uh, their genomes, but also certain genes to identify them. And then the ones that don't reference back, you can actually see uh, that the, one, the ones that you don't have any reference that are quote unquote unknown, you can kind of group them based upon that and start understanding functions based upon the genes and really understand what these genes are doing, how similar or dissimilar. You know, the soil is a black box and it's kind of amazing. We know more about the stars and the cosmos above us than we do about the the soil beneath our feet. It's it's truly a microcosmos. Wow, yeah. So it sounds, there's, there's so much going on there. It sounds so profound and we have so much to learn still. So at this point, I kind of understand a little bit maybe why. They didn't teach me too much about this in high school biology. That <laughs> sounds a little, little, little complex, and uh, you know, sometimes maybe in science classes they don't want to admit how little we know about what's going on in nature. But uh, it sounds like people like you, and a lot of great researchers out there, are trying to delve into this, communicate about it, let people know about it. 
So yeah, thanks so much for taking time to come join me here in the Fusion Forest and talk about your work and go down some some rabbit holes of soil biology and techniques and uh, yeah, come back sometime soon and we can go a little deeper into these various topics. Indeed. Thank you for having me. And before you leave, uh, if people want to follow your work, keep up with what you're doing or support what you're doing, uh, how would they do that? All right. Um, so the easiest way to uh, follow me is my Instagram. Uh, this is a bit of a fun little <laughs> mirror example. My Instagram is uh, nyc.myc. But if you go to the URL, uh, if you type in into your browser myc.myc, it'll directly forward to uh, my uh, my Instagram. And you can contact me via email, Craig, C-R-A-I-G, at myc.myc. All right. So to clarify, MYC, like Mycological, and NYC, like New York City. Yep. For the uh, for the domain, yeah, and I'll I'll give you my email address to put in the show notes. Great, great, yeah, that'll be awesome. Well, thanks so much. Uh, you have a wonderful evening, and hopefully, you'll be back in the Fusion Forest again sometime soon. Likewise, great to be here. All right. Well, I want to thank Craig for uh, taking time to come talk about all that material here in the Fusion Forest podcast. If you want to keep up with his work, follow him on Instagram at nyc.myc, like New York City Mycology. And hopefully he'll be back on the show at some time to explain a little more about all those topics he was getting into. Don't forget to check out the Fusion Forest radio show now on every Monday from 11 a.m. to noon. And keep up to date with the show and the podcast by following the Fusion Forest on Instagram at the Fusion Forest. And if any of these topics interest you, or you'd like to suggest other topics or potential guests, you can send me an email at leaf at ashevillefm.org. That's L-E-I-F at ashevillefm.org. Thanks for listening, and talk to you again soon.